Hello, this is Key Ideas, and I'm your host, Leela Viss. This podcast contemplates the rhythm of life as a piano teacher and music maker. Through illuminating interviews and transparent reflections, you'll feel validated, encouraged, and empowered. This is episode number 57. Frankly, this interview was one that I had not anticipated for this podcast season. That's because today's guest reached out to me and requested to be interviewed. After I studied up on his impressive career, Emil Pandolfi seemed to be a good fit in the season lineup for two reasons. First, his childhood passion for playing and creating at the piano turned into a long-term and successful career. He's a role model for us as well as our students that you can carve out a career as a performing artist, even if it doesn't follow the expected path. And second, his career has withstood the test of time, despite massive changes in technology over the past decades. Remember cassette tapes and CDs? And the squeeze of a global pandemic, Emil continues to overcome and reinvent and stay loyal to his childhood passion and his work. I believe you will enjoy hearing Emil's story. But before we get started, here's more about Emil Pandolfi and his fascinating career. Steinway artist Emil Pandolfi is a second-generation Italian born in Brooklyn, New York. After earning his graduate degree in piano performance, Pandolfi began his working career playing pop standards and fell in love with musicals and movie themes. Among countless other gigs and performances, he performed Rhapsody in Blue in the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Summer Olympics. Chick Corea has called him a monster of technique and asked Emil to help him get ready for his duo performances of Mozart's Double Concerto with Friedrich Gulda. Known as one of the world's premier pop pianists, since 1990 he has recorded 30 solo albums on his own label, with CD sales upwards of 3.5 million copies. Pandolfi has been a Spotify artist since 2015, with 5.5 million listeners and averages over a million streams per month. He's been a successful Pandora artist since the platform was launched in the early 2000s. With a performance career spanning 25 years, Emil is known for connecting with his audiences at a very personal level, as he shares his love of life, laughter, and music. Now, here's Leela with Emil. Hello, Emil, and thank you so much for joining me today. To be honest, now, we have never met in person. Right, right. I'm so glad we connected, as I sensed through our email thread, that you would be a wonderful guest to spotlight on Key Ideas. So let's start out our chat today with why you reached out to me. Well, since I have just written my one and only book called Play It Like You Mean It, I've been anxious to get the word out. Uh, at least because of so much of what I believe in, to uh, professional musicians everywhere. And I feel like I have something, I hope, worthwhile to say. And the best way to communicate it is through professional musicians like yourself. Very nice. And I would, you know, to be nice, I feel like you have a few years on you as far as insight and wisdom. So I think we can glean so much from you. So I'm so glad that you're here. And, and, you asked about the direction of our conversation, and you even mentioned calling it these, this episode the journeyman pianist or the joy of playing piano all your life. Why do you want to take that direction? 
because I think there are people who wish they could do that. I've done it successfully. Uh, they wish they could do that. And they're a little bit, first of all, they don't know how in the world to do it. But I think they, there's something, uh, there, there are sometimes fixed ideas that make you think, well, that's, that's just an impossible dream, or it's something that other people can do. Uh, I've, I've gotten a little bit off topic here. Um, I want to share how you can have a happy life doing what you love. Oh, nice. Nice. And let's just go back to, because I was reading your book and you talk about a very important decision in your life and you were very young. So I think this is how it could connect with my listeners who are mostly teachers of young students. You know, some of them are more advanced, but you have, a you took a covenant with yourself. Do you remember what that was? I do. I, I decided if I am going to play it, excuse me, if I am going to play the piano, which I just knew I was going to do, well, don't just play it, actually. And that's where it came, the, the title of the book, Play It Like You Mean It, like really pour everything you have into it. And I knew nothing about having a career. I, I, was, I was only six or seven years old. It was just a thought, oh, my gosh, if I'm going to do this, then just really do it. And where did that thought come from? It sounds like you were with your parents. Yes, I was at a. Uh, it was at a, a performance, a concert performance by uh, Arthur Rubinstein, who was an idol of mine anyway. He was a great concert pianist, uh, the forties, fifties, sixties. I think even into the seventies. I can't remember when he passed away, but um, he was like ninety years old. And I sat there watching this concert, and and I thought, what had happened? Something new and different that I hadn't felt before. I felt like I was brought to a different dimension, not just, mm. I didn't hear just beautiful playing. It brought me in and made me want to listen to every note and what's coming next. And that was the, when I was playing my first little Dolly Deer with two fingers, I wanted it to say Dolly Deer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that is a unique thing that a child would come to a covenant, a pact like that with himself. So you, you must've had a lot of support from your parents. And did you, were you already in piano lessons when you had heard Rubenstein and the new yes, I okay. uh, piano lessons since I was five okay. and, uh, and from good teachers. And, and I loved it. I always loved it, but I think there was a pivotal point where I thought, yeah, you can, there are so many wonderful pianists, but why, why does one, really speak to you and another doesn't. And that's, that's what I wanted to figure out. I didn't, didn't want to figure out. I just thought, yeah, I can do that. Mm, nice. And l l we'll go to that in just a second, because I think you have some powerful things to say about that. But the other thing that you s mentioned early on in the book is that you call yourself an empiricist. Mm -hmm. So can, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I'm, I've, I've said uh, to you, you're a, um, a, a, a teacher, a pedagogue, and you you know how to bring students to understanding of things. I I don't I have discovered everything I've discovered from uh, empirically by trying try and uh, try and fail try and make it. What's the what's the expression? <laughs> Trial and error. Trial and error. With lots of errors, probably along yes. the way, right? Yeah. Yes. But I've found out that 
certain things work for me. And I don't care if they're voodoo or if they're genuine uh, piano technique. If it works, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, how, that's how I've made my arrangements. It's what we'll talk about arranging later on. But if, if it's something that actually works, meaning by works, I mean, it gets to the other person who's listening and they say, oh, my gosh, I really, was really moved. Then I do that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of curious. Well, and that goes, leads into my next question, which one of the questions I'd like to ask my guests is, uh, what is one question that you wish others would ask? And do you remember what that question was that you wish other people would ask you? Yeah, I have it, I have it right here. I'm like, <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about that. And the question that I like to be asked is, what make what makes that spiritual connection from one person to another? I mean, that's that's kind of the punchline, isn't it? Um, so many people play beautifully, and I mean that sincerely. But I mean beautifully, and you and you maybe go away with admiration and wow, how did they do that? But what I've always been about is. I want the person to say, oh, my gosh. I mean, so many, 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 many times people have come and they say I had tears in their eyes for one or, or two pieces of music that got to them where they were excited or they think about it. I'm doing a two hour concert, me and a piano for 500 to 1000 people is my audience. And I have to hold their attention the whole time. And you can't just say that's why I say I'm an empiricist. What holds their intention? Not. Surely, sometimes uh, technical expertise, uh, but the thing—the thing that goes through my performances—is they're oh my gosh, I'm listening because you're giving me something worthwhile to listen to, and that—that that turns into a spiritual connection because people are think it is heart to heart. They may not know the piece of music they're playing, or they may not uh, be musically trained, but something. Over there, that that I felt gets across a space to the other listener, and how is that happening? That's happening because of inflection. Just the way I'm talking now, I'm I'm talking with excited because I'm excited about what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, well, what you do is you play really well, and you play good songs, and you make it, and you try to connect with the person. It's 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 inflection, really. I love the example that you include from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't know, I don't know if you oh, remember yeah. that. But <laughs> I can't remember that actor's name right now, but I, I, Ben Stein. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I think he's asking if anyone has any questions, right? <laughs> anyone? Anyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he. I totally understand what you mean. Is that you're looking to reach out and hopefully grab onto someone's heart, and it seems like that's what you have done in your career. And so this book is basically telling people what you did and what worked for you. Yeah, since, since as I say, since I have never been a teacher, and I don't consider myself a teacher yet, I have a lot that I have learned. And since I'm never going to be teaching. By the way, I have two uh, te- two sisters who are teachers. I have three sisters. They were all teachers, oh. two violin teachers uh, for their whole entire career. And and they love it. And they're brilliant at it. Like I'm sure you are brilliant at it. And I just don't have that, uh, yeah, that talent or that uh, capability. But uh, 
so I wanted to write the book because I had a lot to say. <laughs> um, and I just thought I'd put it in a book. Yeah. And I think what you say is actually teaching all of us to some extent too. And you know what, what you say in your book is validating to me because I, I do to perform not to the extent that you do. Uh, but a lot of the things that you talk about are things like, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. And oh, that's a good reminder to share with my students as well. That's good. That's good. And now your career path followed an unusual trail because you did not spend your life regurgitating European dead guy pieces. Now, I, no offense to any of those who have, but that has not been your source. Uh, that's not what you program in your concerts. So how did this happen? You, uh, you know, I missed something important. You said I did not make my career doing what? Oh, regurgitating European oh. dead guy pieces. Uh-huh. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of what I call about a, a lot of the music that my piano students still still play and they, you know, still enjoy. But, you know, to be honest, most of the repertoire of piano teaching and piano students is from what before 1900. You know, yeah. so and usually people like you who are trained to give concerts, who are well equipped to play the piano, move towards the classics. But you did not do that. So tell us about how that happened. Well, uh, there are a couple of things. One reason is I'm not in the Olympics of piano. I'm not the Juilliard guy. I I did. You know, as a matter of fact, with my 30 albums are uh, entirely pop, except for one. I did an album of Chopin blockbuster hits to kind of prove to myself and let people know that, yes, I can do this. You can uh, jump through the hoops. Yeah, I was, a, yeah. I was a, very, a very, I would say a very talented uh, musician, uh, classical musician through college, but it was, I was never the extraordinary, you know, I thought, again, if I'm not going to be in the Olympics of piano, which is Juilliard and Van Cliburn competition, which I would, I'm not capable of at all. I'm not in that league. I know that, but so that's one part. The other part of this uh, computation, why did I choose what I choose, is that I want to, I've always wanted to communicate my music, whether it's uh, classical or not, to as many people as possible. And most of your audience anywhere are not classically trained. I mean, this is life. And I wanted to play to people, not uh, just trained musicians. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that I'm not a jazz artist is uh, given that I don't have that ability to play jazz, um, that's not the point. Jazz people play play almost entirely for other musicians, other jazz musicians, because it's a very mm -hmm. intellectual art form, and people want to sit there and say, "Wow, that's amazing!" and it's and and it's a wonderful art form, but uh, that, that gets to a, a point of uh, empiricism. What for me, what works to get. Uh, an emotional response from the, the greatest number of people. Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to quote from your book. You said, your audience is more important than you. Yes. I, I, ever since I was very young, I remember playing, as I said, of my little baby tunes. I wanted, I wanted the listener to really enjoy what I was doing. And it's, it's always been a kind of a natural in inclination for me. I wanted to play for people. I didn't want to play for myself. When, when I, if I want to play things for myself and just enjoy it, I can do that anytime in my studio, but I don't 
put that out. I don't put that in my program and I don't put it on tape. I just, Mm -hmm. that's for me. Okay. So let's go there next then. How do you create your arrangements so that you know that the audience will be engaged with your playing? Like, do you, and I'm, I'm very curious. I want to get down to the nitty gritty here. Where do you start? Now, obviously you probably choose a melody and how do you choose a melody? How do you choose a a pop tune? First of all, I choose ones that are well-known again, old standards, musicals, movies. Then uh, interestingly, most of my, uh, most of my uh, tunes that are old standards are from the thirties and forties. And yet, if you look at my streaming stats, my listeners are women from age 18 to 35. That's my most mm-hmm. uh, uh, largest number of, of listeners. The reason I say that is that these are, are tunes are timeless. They may not know what the tune is, but if you put a lot of, see, I first of all, I get as far as choosing what to, to play. I'm choosing, I love musicals. I love movie themes. And I love old standards. So that's that's where I start. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm doing what is my strength. And that's what I'm drawn to. Then uh, these I take tunes that even if you don't know them, if they're beautiful melodies, they can be, you can put, put some more of yourself into them. And the listener, knowing the tune or not, says, wow, that's, there's something about that song that just makes me feel nostalgic or whatever it makes you feel. Uh, so as far as doing arrangements, yes, I start with a tune that I love, but that I I know or think that many, many people are familiar with or will love it. Uh, one of my favorite things is uh, uh, the theme from Somewhere in Time. I love to play that. And it's a beautiful movie. May, many of my listeners at that age, 18 to 35, don't know the movie. But there's something about the writing that was that it just takes you in from the beginning, and that combined with inflection mm-hmm. is what I think holds a listener's attention. So, okay, you choose a beautiful melody, and really, I do, I do honestly believe that melodies are so important. And I think you even I can't remember the quote, but you said something about melody is king, melody is queen, melody is something, um, but it's it reigns supreme, correct? Yes, no matter mm-hmm. what, because, because so many uh, pop artists like myself, will, uh, they're very good with embellishments and they do lots of arpeggios and lots of things that when those embellishments uh, overshadow the melody, that's a mistake. The, the, the chapter we're talking about is called Elvis is not king, melody is king. Ah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. So <laughs> now, okay, you've got the melody and you're going to be loyal to it. How do you choose the chords that you're going to add to that melody? Right. Now, now, if you think about where I'm starting from with a lot of beginners, you know, they know the one, four and five chords and I want mine all to know the sixth chord as well. And I call those the four primary chords. And so I know I know that you don't just start there, but do you have any rules? Do you have any places where you know you're going to start with a melody or do you just sit down and play and something happens? Well, there are two things. First answer is that I don't have any set uh, rules, but as far as chords go, I have taken uh, jazz uh, ch- cheat sheets, jazz fake cheats, and looked at 
some of the chords because I, I want to learn uh, this years ago, but I wanted to learn how you take the one, four, and five and what are substitutes for those? Like what's substitute for, for a four is a two and substitute for a five could be a sharp one, you know? Uh, so, so you, and, and you see how those, like, like I'll play through the songs, maybe the jazz tunes that I will never perform, but I say, oh, so that's, my whole thing of, is, so that's how he did it. And <laughs> that's what, but I remember the first time I, I honestly, it was, I was in um, high school and I found uh, a C major seventh chord. It was just the fact of a major seventh. And it's yeah. the beginning of the tune Laura from uh, 1930s, Laura. And it's this beautiful sound. And so I, I had that major seventh sound in my catalog of sounds I love. I have another thing I love, a sharp four. I'll play a, a tune and put a sharp four in it, and it's a sound that I know. And so as far as choosing chords, I, I first I always get the sheet music to the chord because I want to see what I'm deviating from. So mm -hmm. I get the sheet music. I learn the song the way the uh, composer wrote it. And then I start putting, as far as chords go, I, I, I think what would – what would be more interesting? What would it's just need? It's 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 after years and years, it's hard to parse it out. But it needs a little magic put into it. And sometimes a sharp four does that. Sometimes for me, a minor chord with a ninth, mm. G minor triad with a, an A in it, and it's just there. There sounds that I have in my catalog of sounds I love. You have a Rolodex in your head, it sounds yes, like, which I know a lot of people don't know what Rolodexes are, but I still do. And I, I totally get, and I told you, you have to start from what the basics, right? And then you're right. You Now, what else can I do? So for listeners who aren't sure about what a sharp four is, can you explain what a sharp four is? Sure. Let's say a C major triad, uh, C, E, G. F sharp is a sharp four in the key of C. Correct. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so I might play C, E, F sharp. Um, what, what I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I, I often do it, I'll play a, uh, an F major chord in the left hand, F, C, A. Uh-huh, yeah. A B natural in the top, and a B natural is a sharp four in the okay, key. Okay, right. Okay, so if we're talking about the F chord... Yeah. Then you're sharpening the fourth scale degree. Yeah, so I guess it's, it's that I'm not playing it right C, E, F sharp, G, for example. I'm playing left hand C in, in the PFC, C, uh, G, E natural, and uh -huh. then F sharp on top of that. Got and it. Okay. And it's it makes you, it wants to resolve back. It wants to resolve to the three. The sharp. Okay. It's like a four wants to resolve to the three. And so it gives a little bit of tension, I guess. Um, the tension and resolution are so much important in so many ways uh, for me that uh, let me see. I'm thinking. Da, 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 da. It's it's almost longing. Da dum da da dum. It's it, it, in context. <laughs> yes, right. I know it's hard to speak out of context, and I just, I loved how you were 
you know, looking up in the air, what do I do? Right. Because you don't even know it's just a habit, but so thank you for sharing a little bit in that insight. And you know what I've been uh, telling my young composers, because, you know, there's so much theory going on, right. And, you know, you know, your theory, but you, it's just, you do it so fast. It takes a while to explain it anymore. But I, I started just saying, okay, well, you see your three chord tones now, you know, if you if you're not liking the sound of it, why don't you change? Why don't you modify one of those? Right. So that's that's kind of what you're doing. And one of your favorite ones is to kind of modify that chord by adding a sharp four. Yeah, that's and of course the voicing is important because you can't do it all in a bunch. Ah, but, yes, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic, isn't it? It is voicing, but I guess the thing is. What do you what, what do I think will make the listener say, oh, oh please resolve, please resolve. Oh. <laughs> and, and you know that's a magic one then, adding that sharp four. All right, so now we know one of your secrets. Yes. We'll be right back. Forte is a free alternative to Zoom purpose-built for music teachers. Forte puts you and your teaching style at the center of the educational experience. In particular, Forte offers industry-leading audio quality. This is what Zoom sounds like. Now listen to the same music recorded on Forte using the same equipment. Our mission is to empower teachers to do their best teaching online. Sign up for free and start teaching your students on Forte today. Just go to ForteLessons.com. That's F-O-R-T-E-L-E-S-S-O-N-S dot com. Now back to our conversation. All right. So now we know one of your secrets. Yes. And one of the, one of the things is for students in general is Try something that is totally uh, not allowed. What do you call it? <laughs> Reboten, you know? Out of bounds. We just learned that you never do that. It's just like you don't have parallel fifths. Well, try some parallel fifths. You know, I, I have a student who does question me a lot on that. And I keep saying, now these are rules. And he doesn't he doesn't like that word rules. But I said, I, I don't know what else to say. But other these are the rules. And once you know them, then it's much more fun to break them. Yeah. but you, And you really desperately need to, to know those rules. You too. You do. I, I, you know, I didn't play. I didn't do any improvising or any arranging until after college. I, I couldn't play two notes by ear. Mm. And but I had this great education in the classics and i would and every now i still i think back what did something that was a little tidbit of rachmaninoff or something that i played in college and i think so that's you know that's how he did it that's <laughs> my whole learning and arranging is so that's how you get that sound so that's how this and i listen to people like oscar peterson and uh how did he do that and uh earl garner some of my jazz favorites um and you just you, you're not later on imitating them, but you're putting that into your whole catalog of uh, 
things at your disposal, I guess. Well, and I think you are just solidifying the fact that I think it's so important for my students and myself to get under the hood of a piece. So like, oh, okay, what is going on there? Because then if they really like it, I'll have them copy it, transpose it, whatever, just so that they remember it and can put it in that catalog. Um, so you've just done your fair share of studying. And I don't know if you're familiar with a book. It's one of my favorite books. It's called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleone. I don't know it. And what you're doing is you're stealing. You're And not in a bad way, but you're borrowing. Okay, what did they do there for that chord? And then you're taking it into your own catalog. And because it's you, Emil, it's never going to be someone else's. You know, that's... I, I, that's the premise of that book. Um, but it sounds like I, I always like validation because I kind of go about my arranging the same way. So any other tips that you might have? Well, I, okay, you talk a lot about arpeggios. I like, arpeggios are a big deal. Why is that? Is that because that's one way the pianist can sound like many people, like an orchestra almost? Yes, it's one, it's one way that you can fill in the, the spaces. I don't mean just filler. But if you want, because the piano cannot sustain a tone very long, just by the nature of the instrument, uh, a violin could last forever, a string section can last forever. So how do you fill in that space between la, la, you know, there's something, if you want this la to really last, you could, you could trill, you could arpeggiate, uh, you could repeat the chord, things like that. But arpeggios, I think arpeggios, they're, first of all, they're fun to play and they fall well under the hand and, and, they are, and they sound impressive. So that's where they can get out of control. And I've heard a lot of pianists do that. A lot of, they're playing pop music and they're arranging it. And after every phrase, there's a big arpeggio. <laughs> and it's, it, it gets annoying after a while. So you have to manage them, use yeah. them. Add some yeah, spice. There's, there's another tool, you know. Mm-hmm. So, know. while we're on your this creative track, where does your inspiration come from? I love to answer or ask this question to people who are creatives like you. Do ideas come to you or from you? Ah, that's interesting. I think they come from me. Mm-hmm. I, would, I haven't ever really thought that out, but. What I do is I, I play as far as I'm going to, I found a song that I like. I'm, uh, I have a whole series of what I can do for arranging, but I play it over and over and over again. I mean like the same song for two hours and the song is two minutes, three minutes long. So I play it over and over again. And I, as I do it, I have a tape running, it's just my phone now. And I, I go back and listen to what, if I have something that I really liked, I, you know, I stop it. I might write myself a few notes, but I play it over and over again. Uh, and the ideas come as I'm, uh, as I'm playing it. Um, I might, I might even make a mistake or I play a chord that's different or I try a totally stupid chord and something about it. I, I remember and I say that this sounds good or, and, and then I take that idea and I, Develop it. Maybe I do a sequence of the same uh, five notes over and over again. I did that in uh, Beauty and the Beast to start the uh, the Beauty and the Beast. I have a, a a sequence that runs down from the top of the piano, and at some point, I had a vision of Beauty and the Beast uh, from from the movie, and I wanted to create a backdrop that that was kind of like 
stars falling. Mm. So you know, that is my opinion. So da da di di da 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 di da 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 di, and it came. It starts at the very top and comes all the way down, and then it does it again before the actual tune starts. So I've set the scene, and I hope I've got captured the listener's attention because again, I'm always thinking as a listener. I think I always. I'm always thinking as a listener. Uh, mm, mm, that's a good thing to think about. I like that. Is this too much? You know, maybe it's where sometimes I have some ideas that are musically and technically really intelligent ideas, but I don't think they'd interest anybody. So they, they get chucked. And it sounds like you do a lot of noodling. I over do. Over and over. Yes. And that's where your ideas come from. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And do you ever have times where you just have no ideas they're all gone nothing yes and and there are some tunes that i love that i've been never arranged because i just can't do anything with them really yeah uh. I just i i don't know what to do so uh, you know but i i would love to play them and i play them for myself but i can't do anything that i think is i think whenever i'm playing a tune I should have something new to say about it. Every tune I play has been played thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. So I better have something to say about it that's different. Mm. Uh, and I do have a, if, if, we, if we want to talk more about arranging, I do have a, a, a kind of a plan if, if you want to hear it. Oh, well, <laughs> of course. I would love to hear it. Yes. What is your plan? Okay. So first of all, you find a tune that you know you can do something with. <laughs> yes, and I've played it enough to get comfortable with it. Then I say it needs to have a, a start. <clears throat> it, I, it's a story, and it needs to have a uh, set the scene, which is the the doodling down in this case. Maybe I have a, uh, an, a whatever the the uh, intro is is to set the scene. Then I the the main plot of the story is the the main melody. So we play the song through. Then I have it go off into little, uh, uh, little, little uh, expeditions, little episodes here and there. Maybe I play a, a, the melody. Maybe I play the first part of the melody, and I think, oh, that was pretty. Maybe I'll do this, and I and I'll play a little bit of a an improvisation that is what I think about what I just played. Mm -hmm. I played a song. Uh, the a kiss is still a kiss as time goes by. And I say, ah, oh, my mind is just wandering. And I go, blah, 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 blah. That's what I think about that song, that phrase. And then I play the next phrase. And what do I think about that phrase? And, and this is not, I don't certainly don't do that as a routine. Mm -hmm. every but, but it's what, it's playing the song and then saying what you think about what you just played. And all of it has to be, Interesting. You can't just go say again. You can't just go all arpeggio and now play the next song and then arpeggiate. It's it's got to be some kind of a. Gosh, my mind's wandering. You know, I I uh, I, I sometimes say uh, to people, uh, this improvisation is like I think James Joyce called it stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Today we call it ADD, <laughs> and whichever it is, I think. <laughs> Like ADD, but I say what 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 happened when I play a melody? What do I think about that melody? That's that's what I want to do. Even with the melody itself, I'll emphasize certain parts of it that are meaningful to me. But to me, as a listener, because I I have two things happening on, on many arrangements. It's me as a 
wow, that is brilliant what you just did. But nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> I go back and forth and I say, well, I got it. Oh, yeah, nobody was so good. I'm talking to myself. It was just a brilliant uh, way of turning the tune upside down and putting it sideways and doing this. And, it's, and into an intellectual geek, he'll love it. <laughs> He's well-trained in piano. But it, it gets chucked because I'm playing for people. Uh, wow. Okay. So you do, there's a cutting floor. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So now it sounds like you, yes, you let yourself go away from the melody, stray from it just a little mm-hmm. bit. And then do you, it sounds like you're telling a story. So is there always a peak in your piece? Is there yeah. always? Yes. Okay. And usually these, uh, the, the tunes that I'm playing because of where they come from musicals and, and movies, particularly, well, and the standards too. They are written beautifully, so so they have built in a climax, and 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 again after the first time through, there's a wandering. Then there's a one more time with feeling, kind of a usually, yeah. And uh, and it can have a it can have a big ending, or it can have a denouement that just dives away. But uh, I usually include whatever I whatever my uh, opening set the scene was i usually put at the end as kind of a bookmarking but it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a story of that says what it says goes away wanders gets into mischief comes back and says it again and then says so that's what i meant <laughs> i like that uh-huh. <laughs> kind of like say it say what you're gonna say say it and then say it again yeah exactly right. mm-hmm. And yeah. and so yeah, any other parts of that formula, that arranging formula, that yeah, um, don't disappoint. If oh. if you're gonna, uh, if you're going to go away, you better come back, and and if you're going to go away, you better keep their attention while you're going. Why are you going off on a tangent? You know, it can't just be. You can't just take this. Say this is a formula intro, uh, a subject go away, come back. It, it's, um, it has to make, it has to be satisfying. You know, it has to just say, oh, I, I'm keep listening, keep listening. Oh my gosh, where's he going now? Oh dear me. And then, but it comfortably comes back and you feel safe, safe and more. I also heard you say the word why. So you probably ask yourself, okay, why am I going here? And if I am going to go here, I got to make sure I get back on track. Yes. You, you, you can't, Yes, you can't just, I mean, many times in my practice, I do, I'll go everywhere, I, every every place. Mm-hmm. But does it have any reason to go there? You know, uh, it's, if it doesn't, then, then just stay with the song, you know. Some songs I play, like I would say, uh, Somewhere in Time, it's just a beautiful, beautiful melody to my ear. And I pretty much didn't arrange it. I, I mean, I play it very simply, and then I play it a little bit well, a good deal more intensely, but there's no wandering really. This, it, for some reason, it just needed to be a like it's a two and a half minute piece, and it, it's the simplicity of it is some of the beauty of it, and that's by John Barry, by the way, somewhere in time, from a beautiful movie. And so, it's already, it's already arranged, kind of. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're just playing it and yeah. and putting your stamp on it, so to speak. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, 
when I hear your pieces, which they're, they're gorgeous, it's obvious that you have a stellar technique and obviously it comes with ease for you. And I think technique ties into your artistry Mm -hmm. and that's how you have a career in music making. And I enjoyed some of the tips that you gave and the phrases that you used. So, uh, and I've just got a little list here. Let's see what's, what, what this list triggers for you. Fingering. Mm -hmm. Yes. What's, what's your rule about fingering? There was a couple, but there was one that I liked a lot or your perspective on fingering. Fingering is that, uh, we have to watch out. We have, first of all, you want your you have your whole education behind you, and you have taught you're taught which fingers to use, and that's for very very good reason. But if you want to fly free, and you want to play a G flat major scale with a C major fingering because you feel like it, or you want to play just the black notes with the thumb, um, it shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a, a taboo against you saying, I mean, as I, as I said in my book, to this day, there's a little voice in my back of my head says, you really shouldn't be using that fingering. <laughs> I can't believe it, but it's so ingrained. And, and there are other fixed ideas that people have. That happens to be one of mine. But with fingering, you use whatever finger happens to be there at the time. Very, very often, I play a melody with the two thumbs in the middle. So it sounds like it's coming out of the, I can still use the, the other fingers of my right hand for accompaniment and bass on the, on the left hand, but the two thumbs could play the melody and you wouldn't particularly know that it's just, uh, you know, it, it might be a, as a matter of fact, when I've had a couple of my arrangements transcribed, the transcriber doesn't is listening and hearing and writing what he uh, writing down what he hears. He doesn't do the the fingering right because and it gets to be very difficult to read the music that he's written because he doesn't know that I was using two thumbs. Uh, <laughs> Shh, yeah. Don't tell anyone. Well, I, uh, Schumann writes one a romance that yeah it shares the. But yes, the melody is shared between the thumbs. And I think that's when I start reminding my students, that's why we have the pedal. You know, you do want to have a very legato, very nice legato touch, but every once in a while, the pedal really comes in handy for those Mm. kind of things. Oh, go ahead. One of the techniques I learned from uh, Schumann from the Carnival is uh, the in uh, Papillon. Well, it's, the thumb is doing these repeated notes and I've, I've used that specifically that stole it from him mm-hmm. that technique in uh, one of my arrangements of starry, starry night. Anyway, it's the more classical repertoire you have in your background, the better you are because they did everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not doing anything new, but I'm, using those techniques <clears throat> and then altering them as I need to. This, uh, this next quote goes back to perhaps more of the artistry behind your playing and how you're trying to reach out and grab the hearts of your listeners. But I loved this, this phrase, bang out the subtleties. Yes. yes. <laughs> so go explain that for us, please. You bet. You bet. That's a big one because um, if you're going to, have a, 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 a subtle inner movement of, of a melody, um, like a, um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the way I play charade at one point. Um, I'm, I'm, I have 
I have a tenor inner voice movement while the, the melody is going. And if you if you're so subtle that nobody can hear it, what's the point? As a matter of fact, uh, you, it, it's it's said facetiously, but not quite so, because something that again that captures the interest of the listener is what's going on. There's more going on here. I can't. I not only hear the melody is king. Melody is always first, mm-hmm. but uh, just a step lower, you might have the uh, the accompaniment very quiet and the melody pretty loud, by contrast. And then this inner voice, da da dee dee da. If it's if it's too quiet, it's it's wasted. You didn't get it. And I really believe in. As a matter of fact, Horowitz was a genius at that, bringing out inner voices, uh, sometimes extraordinarily loud. Wow! But he really wanted you to hear that counter melody or just the the interest of the harmonic changes. You know. And that's why we wanted to listen to them because, you know, we don't even see that on the page and then someone will bring that out. Um, So, yes. And now speaking to the, about subtleties, you also talk about dynamics a lot and pianissimo and the fact that even if it is supposed to be very quiet, your melody is always going to be what even a mezzo forte. I mean, I remember Nalita true saying something about that. Like, even if it's yes, Pianissimo, your melody will still be at least mezzo forte. Great. My, one of my teachers was West True. That's oh, West. okay. And the elite is dad, I guess. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I love that man. I, he, he, I still love him. He's still around, but he's probably 90 years old now. Oh. And uh, yeah, West True. Oh my gosh, Nelita. Okay. So, I, yes, I agree because, because, to the listener, if you're playing a very, very quiet uh, accompaniment and you have a mezzo forte melody, the whole the whole hearing uh, experience is that it's a quiet piece. That you're not banging, you're not banging out. Now you bang out the subtleties, but not banging out the melody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, it, it means it's obvious that all of these things are a judgment call, but the point is the contrast of the pianissimo and the mezzo forte, just a nice speaking level makes for, it just makes more interest. Again, everything I'm doing every single moment should be interesting. As I said, when I play a two hour concert, I know I have to hold their interest for two hours. And I do a lot of uh, comedic monologue in between, but that has to hold their interest too. It can't be, there's nothing throwaway. And and in the program, I try to program it so that nothing is filler. It's mm. just mm. every every moment should be interesting. And yep. one of the ways you do that is that contrast. One Go of the things that I remember you saying, but I'm not going to say it correctly. So let's see once if you can say it. It's I remember someone t- telling me now play to the person in the back row of the concert hall. Mm-hmm. But I love you have a saying about when you are playing piano or playing a, a melody very delicately. Do you remember what that saying is? Yeah, I can't quote it. It's from a poet laureate who's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely beautiful. I'd, I'd have to find it. It's it's, a, it's so beautifully said. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'll I make sure I, I add it at the end because I, I loved the way 
it was said as well. And I will step on it and make it not sound nearly as nice if I try and say it now, but I will make sure that I add that in because I I just loved that phrase. Um, Let's move on to your, I, I love the way you talk about speed because yes, you can play very fast, but I loved this phrase, never sacrifice sacred accuracy at the altar of the graven image of speed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I think I need to tell that to some of my students every once in a while. You know, I need to tell that to myself when I play classical. I was just, just listening. I've made my Chopin album about uh, 15 years ago or more, and I, I almost never listened to it. And I thought... God, I played so darn fast, and I and I wouldn't today. Mm. Uh, I see impromptu at about 100 miles an hour, and, um, and but it was accurate. I have to say that. What I'm talking about with that is that <clears throat> if you can play runs really fast, but they're kind of blurry and the they're not articulated well, it's an, it's annoying. And if you play a little bit slower, but you hear every note articulated, it sounds faster because you're hearing you're not hearing So I think when people try to, students mostly, try to play so fast that it's blurry, I think that's a mistake. And if they take it down a notch and and hear every note, it's quite wonderful to hear. Every note is wonderful to hear every note. I say every note matters. That's what I, and I try and say that to myself as well, because I, I catch myself playing things faster than I need to, you know, just slow it down. It's going to be a lot more fun to play and no one's going to know that you're playing a little bit slower than what the composer. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. You have memorized millions of notes over a life, over a lifetime. So can you give us a few insights on how you squeeze all of those notes into your memory bank? Yes. And it's by knowing, see, first of all, <clears throat> I don't have that uh, ability and I haven't that memory with classical pieces. I've played all, all of the classical pieces. I have to relearn if I'm playing them. There's no question about it. But with pop tunes and my arrangements, it's understanding where that arrangement came from so I could recreate it. It's not memorizing as much as recreating, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I think when you, it's the same thing with we're learning a classical piece. If you say, if you do your study and you say, that's exactly how he did, oh my gosh, now I understand how that uh, Beethoven sonata, that measure or that part of it was put together because I, un- I actually know how he did it. And then to close the page and see if you could create it yourself, just that little bit. And when that becomes a habit of whenever I'm learning, I'm learning pop tunes would way thousand times easier than Beethoven. But when you, when you know why you did it, <clears throat> pardon me, or how, how it came to be because you understand it and you really know it, what you know, you don't forget. What you memorize, you can forget. But what you know, you don't forget. Yes, and I have that right here too as one of your quotes. And I would call that getting under the hood, knowing what chord comes next and knowing that chord progression, and of course, memorizing that melody. And you made a big deal about the importance of knowing chord symbols, which I yes. have to give a shout out to as well, because I'm a big fan of knowing those because they were not my friends for a long time. Yeah, I understand. I, again, I guess in high school, I started seeing a few. I played in a, a 
pickup band or something. Now, that's interesting. I'm sorry, interrupting you, but you said seeing a, f- a few. So beforehand, you never really saw chord symbols in any music that you picked up. I never had a fake yeah. book. I mean, if, you get, if I would buy sheet music to something, uh, a pop tune, yes, they have chord symbols above it. I didn't pay any attention. I was reading mm-hmm. the notes of the page. And I was doing that. First of all, in college, I didn't play any pop. Because no, in my at my age that was frowned upon uh, as if you're a real pianist. So, but but then, uh, but but when I got my first fake book uh, it was after college, and I started. I mean, I had to study the chords because I I take sheet music and I would they would have the chord written out, but then they have the chord symbol. So I mean, I just had to study and learn. But they were so super important because. They're just, they give you such freedom. All you have to do, you, you, the, the fake books have a melody line and a chord symbol, and off you go. I mean, it's <laughs> brilliant. And they're not that hard to learn, but if nobody points it out to you, you just don't, you just don't get it. Well, I remember getting sheet music of pop music and seeing what the guitar tabs and the chord symbols, like, oh, that must be for the guitar. I'm not going to pay attention to that. So it... Yeah. Yes, I've I've come come around at a completely different angle, and so appreciate them. And yes, you're right. When you know your chords, you now you have freedom to do what you yeah, want yeah. to. You have tremendous freedom, and and when uh, also looking at a, a jazz uh, transcription that has the actual notes, but you see how he voiced those chords. It's just not it's an F major seventh, but how did he voice it? Which one is important? Which notes are not important? That's another subject, of course. Well, it is. And so what you're saying is, yes, you got to know your chords and be able to play them on your own. But then seeing how other people play and voice those chords is also a learning, a time of learning. And then what they do can be added to your catalog when you're arranging. Yes. Um, I I have a quote here from Shakespeare that from his 29th sonnet that I, so I listened to Elton John, Dr. John, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Lang Lang, Yuja uh, Wong, Oscar Peterson, Rubinstein, Chopin, all the great pianists. And I wish I could do what they do, but I can't. But I know what I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there's an excerpt from the sonnet. Uh, says Shakespeare said, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I most enjoy, contented least. I think that if you you can fall into the trap of wishing you could play, I do wish I could play like Oscar Peterson, and I do wish I could play like Billy Joel, but I can't. <laughs> but I know what I can do, and I pour everything into what I can do and make it the best me it can be. And and uh, it's, it's just, I think that's what works, is know who you are musically. You have to find that out. And, and there are some tips in the book on how to find that out. But once you find out who you are, do that. In the meantime, I, I explore, I, I, again, on my own time, I'll play some Billy Joel arrangements or some Elton John. And the reason I haven't uh, recorded any of their tunes because they're pianists and they did it the way it should be done. And it's sort of arranging it doesn't quite make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the tunes, love how they played, but that's not me. Mm-hmm. Even if I wish it were me. Wish it were I, pardon me, English majors. (laughs) 
Uh, that's a very good thing to tell our students as well. As ourselves, as I do my own composing and arranging, I know now kind of where I settle as far as my sound and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'm sure like you, a lot of other things trickle in and then it, it melts into, it's a melting pot really. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then you, we all put our own twist on things. So now most listeners of key ideas are teachers. So some may perform, but most do not have a long haul career as a concert pianist with regular solo gigs like you did for years. How, how long were you concertizing? Until about until the pandemic, really, just uh, so I started concertizing in 1990. So, uh, you know, about about 30 years, I guess, 35 years, because I was always there was doing concerts and I've I've stopped doing uh, performance, uh, performance halls, PACs, um, performing arts centers. But I'm, I'm still doing some uh, occasional private concerts and things like that. Excuse me. Mostly, I've been concentrating on the streams because I've, that's that's my career now is putting tunes up on streaming, and I have about four hundred songs up. You know, and so streaming means Spotify, Pandora. Yes, and on for example, on on my uh, streaming is people people listening to Pandora. They may not even know they're listening to me, but they're listening to Quiet Piano or Piano for Study or whatever they're listening to. But um, I now have something like 800 million streams of the music because they're, they're that many. And, and, and streaming is such a wonderful thing because it can go all over the world. Spotify is all over the world. Pandora is just in the U.S. But people can listen to music anywhere, basically. So it's, right. it's pretty cool. So, okay. Yes, the pandemic did definitely shut down <laughs> your concertizing. Were you ready to, to be done or did COVID just put the stop sign there for you. I wasn't ready. I, I had to um, cancel about five concerts. And then I had, and then uh, I had some, some of them wanted to reschedule. And I found I was just more comfortable. I was sort of, sort of enjoying without the, without having COVID, good God forbid. I was enjoying the fact of everything being shut down. And it, it didn't make a lot of, on my daily life every day, I come to my studio. It's about 10 minutes from the house. I spend all day at the studio and I go home about seven o'clock and my wife and I watch movies or whatever we do. And my wife runs the business always has from the very beginning. And uh, so I don't have anything to do with that. So, so my, my days weren't so much different except uh, we had at the most, we had 30 concerts in a year, but that was several years ago. And when we, when I stopped, we had about 15 concerts a year. So I was, I was kind of, slowing down anyway. And for the two years that we couldn't do any um, concerts, I just, uh, I thought, hmm, this is nice. <laughs> do <kind> of- <laughs> and, and my wife had a lot to do for the concerts, you know, arranging <clears throat> piano rentals or uh, ticket sales and things like that. And just talking with the, uh, the venues on all of our tech requirements, things like that. I mean, she, she's very, very knowledgeable on that. And, and she writes contracts and all sorts of things because we didn't, we don't have an agent now. So she was doing all of that. Which is a lot of work. Yeah. A lot of work. So now looking at this post pandemic world, and if you were 30 years younger, do you think you could pull off the same career now that you had? Hmm, That's a good, that's a good question. I, 
I don't know because I don't know how popular solo piano is now. When I started solo piano, there was, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, um, the guy who did Hucklebell uh, Cannon, he, he made it into a pop tune and he... Uh, well, there's Yanni. Um, it was like Yanni, is that sort of thing. But in the but but solo piano was was very very big, and we started. I started my career by uh, making CDs. They were cassettes at the time, and they were being sold in gift shops. So the 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 market was thousands and thousands of small gift shops. Like one, one order might be 10 CDs or 25 CDs, but there were thousands of them, literally. And that absolutely went away, closed down. Right. Uh, so so all from, from the, the um, biggest year we had, 1995 or 96, I sold 360,000 cassettes. There was uh, cassettes or CDs, I don't remember what they were, it's 95. And in a given year now, we sell maybe 5,000 CDs. So you still sell CDs? Yeah, we still sell. They, okay. We get orders from Amazon on a weekly basis. And there's, we, but we, have, we now have a lifetime supply of CDs in our warehouse. <laughs> and so streaming, and th- that has always been a bit of a controversy because does the artist really make any money if they are listening, if someone is listening to your performance on Spotify or Pandora? Yes. The answer to that is you have to have a lot of it to make any money. Yes. You get paid for every stream and it's, and the, they're different on different platforms. It's different amount. Just to give you an idea on uh, Spotify, it's 0.0008 of a cent. uh, If they listen to uh, one of your tunes. So, so you'd have to have millions before you would uh, make any money. That's I true. would say millions to have a cup of coffee almost. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> uh, but it, you, you still continue to, to kick them out, right? You, because yes. you love it so much. Yes. Well, so much, but, uh, it, but also just to be frank, it, it, it does pay the bills. I'm, I mean, with 800 million, it adds up. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fortunate that I, you know, I have that many and, and I keep trying to add to that. So thank you for pointing that out, because now my next question is, would you encourage teachers to encourage their students to do what you did or do what you do? Uh, yes. And in, in, my, uh, in the chapter at the end about a career in music, I did every as a young person, I did everything. I accompanied dance classes. I accompanied uh, actors auditions. I was living in L.A., so there was a lot of that. But wherever you live, there they are dance uh, classes to make a few bucks. What I have a whole lot to say, and it's in the book about if you want to play music the rest of your life, everybody, the problem is always money. It's always for everybody. So I have a lot of ideas on how you can make some money to survive, or do you want to choose, this is too, this is too stressful, now I'm going to have, get a job let's just call it a day job generically mm-hmm. and play music uh, on the side. And if I get a gig, I get a gig. If I don't, it's not going to kill me. That decision has to be made, but streaming was not, a, you know, streaming is wonderful, but, but it has, 
I did what was available at the time, which was cassettes and CDs. And when that got that just was vanished almost overnight. It was so fast. Um, we we changed with it, and we uh, submitted everything. We were some amongst the first artists to put something up on. Apart, apart from the blockbusters, apart from the Michael Jacksons and the Beyonces, you know, if you take those out of the mix, our record sales were in the top five percent of record sales in the country when they were in CDs. And again, you take the superstars out of it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so we were very early on. Apple Music was one of the first streaming platforms, and my wife uh, submitted all of my music over time. You had to submit one by one and, and take a lot of paperwork and stuff that I'm not interested in, but she did. Mm. And we, uh, so we moved to that platform and then we just studied it and see what, what do they really play? What plays most? What are they looking for? Uh, what sort of songs? And, and we did that. And we put my whole catalog on streaming eventually. It's a lot of diligent work. And, yeah, and, a whole lot of work, uh, and, it, and it does pay off, but it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of work. That's why my, my chapter says you have to have a duty. You have to have somebody, whether it be yourself or someone else, has to do it. There's no, there's no way around. Right, and I, I don't know if you've heard this term before, but usually as a musician, you need about seven streams of income, and mm-hmm. and it sounds like you have managed to, you know, stick with your first love through thick and thin and a global pandemic, you know, and so good for you for being able to morph yourself into new, what to fit yourself into what today's society and how today's society gets their music and you continue to thrive. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. And and a lot of congratulations. I mean, I I goes to my wife as well because you do, because really, there is so, so, so much involved in it. But I, I really like the chapter on do you want music as a career? Because there's, there's a wealth of stuff in there. And as far as I'm not, I'm not uh, the person to ask about what's available online. There are thousands of, you know, lessons online, how to, how to put your music up for streaming, how to make money from streaming. There are zillions of things that I just what I mostly did was focus and find out what is it I'm really good at. Do more of that and do more of that and do more of that and then put it out on every avenue you can. We're on all the streaming platforms, not just Spotify and platform. Uh, there's, there are some tips in there on how to get your music out on streaming, but there's tons of information about that. The thing is that you may you may be a person who, says, I'm sorry, that's just too much trouble. I, I get a job that I can enjoy for the next 40 years and play music on the side. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not that you failed. If you, I think if, you're, if you consider yourself failing at music, you failed at business. <laughs> you know you can play music and you're probably really, really good. I mean, you're really, really good. Some of the best musicians I know are starving to death. And it's because they don't, they're not good businessmen or they don't have good businessmen. And, and if you really, really have to separate that out and love how you play and just adore it and you make a few hundred bucks at it, but, but that you can't afford it. Every, everybody I know has money problems. I mean, you just do. If you take out the billionaires, you, money is the problem. 
So you find a way to do that and do your music, music besides. For a short time, a couple of years, I was a, uh, I worked construction, and I and I was a janitor for about a year. Uh, just and I still played music. I was working at the comedy store in the Los Angeles for a few bucks, and I did other work. And and I didn't I didn't hate it. I thought, wow, I can pay my rent every. I get a check. Are you kidding me? I get a paycheck every week. Wow, <laughs> you know, instead of playing for a dance class on Monday and then not having another dance class till next Thursday and hope and getting 25 bucks each and uh, trying to think where I could play. I've played cocktail piano, which I really enjoyed. And cocktail piano taught me a great deal about talking to people in, in my show. As I say, I have a lot of monologues, comedic monologues. Well, they came from sitting at the piano and talking to people and playing at the same time. And anyway, I, it's, I did everything you could do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're cre a creative to begin with, and you got creative with your career. And I think that's what we need to encourage our students as well. Yes, you can have a profession in music, but be ready to be creative with it. Yes. And not only that, it's, I think it's really important. If you don't succeed in a career in music, you're not a failure in music. You're a failure in mm -hmm. business. You know? Nice. <laughs> it's really yeah. important. Because you could feel bad about yourself. I thought I play. I guess my people don't like it. Yes, they like it, but you haven't got it out there because some business person hasn't got it out to hear. Right. I think that's very important. That is yes. So and yes, we all should have a Judy in our life. Okay, I like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Well, we could talk all day, Emil. It's been fabulous having you here. But let's call it a day today. But before we go, can you share a favorite quote? Yes, I can. And it can be from someone else or from your book, whatever it's, you'd like. Yes, yeah, from someone else. And I, I uh, had a heads up on that. So I found one that I love. And it's by uh, an, an author of romance novels. Her name is Georgia Cates. And she says, music is what feelings sound like. <coughs> Pardon me, what feelings sound like. Mm. Mm. Yes, I've heard that one before, too. Thank you for letting me know who the author is. That's a powerful one. So, Emil, it's been fantastic having you here with me. And I'm so thankful that we could learn from you. And you have shown us that we can have a long-term profession in music and continue to change along with the times. So thank you for being a star, not only as a pianist, but also a businessman and someone who, as a creative. Thank you, thank you for having me as a guest. I really enjoyed this. A huge thank you to Emil for taking the time to share your story and wisdom. As a lifetime artist and savvy businessman, we're inspired. Through your generous spirit and life experience, you've reminded us that it's possible to push through and that pursuing a career as a performing artist can be a sustainable and fulfilling profession. Head to the show notes for links to Emil's book called Play It Like You Mean It, and you'll find where to find his music on Spotify and Pandora. Also look for a link to Forte and click on it as soon as possible because they have a terrific promo going for all Key Ideas listeners. Here's how it works. Sign up with the link in the show notes and create a virtual studio on Forte. 
Then invite students and teach three lessons on the platform within five weeks of your virtual studio creation. Sorry, only those located in North America, Canada, United States, and Mexico can qualify for this promotion. Remember, this is a limited time offer. In order to qualify, you must create your virtual studio on Forte before November 18, 2022. I'm Leela Viss, and see you in the trenches.